Really, the only thing you need to know about me is that recently I became a grandparent. And so this is uh, the little baby. She's, uh, she's lovely. Her name is Eleanor. Uh, her keepers, my son and daughter-in-law, took them far, far away from us and took them to Kentucky where they're, they're ministering in a church there. But they, they keep us updated with videos and pictures and that sort of thing, which is really great. And we appreciate especially that they're taking a lot of time to uh, talk to her about Jesus, read the Bible, and pray with her. But they recently sent us this video, which I'm going to show, and I hope you can hear it. If not, it'll become clear in a minute, which was a little disturbing. And I want to see if you can catch what's disturbing about this. Now, in the picture, just so you can kind of keep up with who's who, um, the guy with the beard is my son. The attractive one is Eleanor, the little one, and obviously they're sharing a book together. Who is that, Eleanor? Who is it? Let me explain what just happened. They're looking at this picture book. It's obviously Jesus in a picture book because Jesus has a beard. Daddy has a beard. And so now my granddaughter is growing up thinking that my son is Jesus. Or that when she looks at a picture of Jesus, then that's Daddy. And I don't know. I'm not an expert in this. But this seems like it could be trouble later on for there to be this kind of confusion about which one of them really is Jesus. And when you uh, picture Jesus, what is one thing that stands out to you about Jesus when you picture Jesus? Just turn to somebody next to you and take like five seconds and say, when I picture Jesus, this is what stands out to me, and share that with the person next to you. Okay, there's a lot of conversation out there, and it's, it's, it's picking up. I can tell that you like to visit with each other, but, uh, which is great. One of the reasons why we're here, right? You know, there are no authenticated pictures of a Jesus that survived, which is ironic because he's one of the most frequently depicted people in history. What does the New Testament tell us about what Jesus looked like? Well, next to nothing, right? Nothing. We know that Jesus is Jew from Galilee. Uh, we know he's about 30 when he started his ministry, according to Luke 3. When uh, Judas betrays Jesus, he kisses Jesus to identify him, which strongly suggests he sort of blended in with a lot of other people, right? Historically, and looked very similar to other people. A number of years ago, there was a forensic anthropologist who took uh, the skull of a Galilean male from the time period and did the forensic anthropology stuff to say, okay, he might have looked something like this. Now, understand, just as with the picture of my son, this is not actually Jesus. But this is what somebody of that time period of that age might have looked like. So let's do a little exercise. We have, we're doing a lot of pictures here. I, I, I kind of vacillate between should I have content or should I show pictures? And the pictures tend to work better, you know. 
So we're going to do a lot of pictures, uh, and that means if you can't see them well, you may want to move up, up front uh, closer. But as I go through these pictures, just ask yourself, which of these looks more like Jesus to me? And by me, I don't mean me, I mean you. So which of these looks more like Jesus to you? I'm going to let you talk again, so I'm reluctant to do that. And maybe just, you know, take 15 seconds and say, well, it's that one. That one looks more like Jesus to me. Uh, just talk with your partner, somebody next to you. Who looks more like Jesus up there? This kind of thing is a pretty interesting exercise, right? Because we had talked about a lot of things. You know, which of those pictures look more like somebody from the first century in Palestine, maybe, um, or uh, which connects with what, who I understand Jesus to be, what Jesus is about, what fascinates me, what draws me in. Uh, there's a good chance with an exercise like that, we're going to learn more about ourselves maybe than we do about, about Jesus sometimes. Uh, the New Testament doesn't give us an image of Jesus, like graphically. But the New Testament does give us a lot of images of Jesus in the sense that there are themes and metaphors and pictures, meanings and significances and lessons that are all being presented to us about Jesus in different parts of Scripture from the Old Testament forward. Uh, this, this class actually is not going to be an art history class or an art interpretation class. I'm not really competent to do that. And it's not even really about the pictures, uh, per se, although we're going to look at a lot of pictures, but mostly because they express, well, different ways people conceive of Jesus. We can sort of relate to them and connect to them uh, in, in, in helpful ways. Um, but we're really talking about images of Jesus, not just hanging on the wall or in your children's Bible, but images of Jesus in your mind, images of Jesus in your heart, the images of Jesus that we paint through our our, our songs and our, our worship language and our prayers and the passages of Scripture we go to repeatedly rather than others. And uh, those are all different ways in which the pictures of Jesus and our conception of who Jesus is and what he does are, are built. We're going to keep coming back to the pictures because that helps us get into some of these things, but we're really talking about it more broadly. This evangelical, uh, very influential evangelical preacher, Tozer, said once in the knowledge of the holy, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, which is a pretty big claim. So obviously we're talking about more than just pictures. We're talking about matters of, of the heart um, and what we expect of Jesus and what we think Jesus expects of us. There are lots of ways in which images of Jesus in our minds, in our hearts, in our experience, in our churches, in our language, and yes, on, on the wall. Uh, it's a two-part class. You're at the first part, so that's good. We're, today we're going to take a little tour through the gallery of history, looking at some different ways that people have conceived of Jesus. And then tomorrow, we're going to ask a little more about ourselves and peer into our imaginations and examine the values or agendas that connect to how we're picturing Jesus and talk a little bit about shaping healthy imaginations and our experience with the Lord.
So today, it's this uh, tour through a gallery of history. Now, a history of Jesus images could go a lot of different directions and would take a lot of time to be really comprehensive. Um, there's far too much to cover. So I just want to focus on a few themes. And we're going to do it the way, not the way that I prefer to go through a museum, but the way my children often prefer to go through a museum uh, when they were young. If that relates, you know. My way was to stop and spend a lot of time with individual things and unpack them and so on. And their way was, well, let's move on to the next room. And what's in the next room? And what's in the next room? And that's what we're going to do today is move through several different rooms pretty quickly. But I think that's useful because it hits us with, uh, images and perspectives from different angles and gets us to think about them a little bit differently. Um, I, all of these images that we're going to talk about today are in Scripture. They, they all come out of Scripture and they're in Christian teaching. Um, uh, but we're not going to spend a lot of time going back and chasing down biblical texts and passages. I just want to walk us through the gallery, actually sort of running through the gallery to think about these images. Just take my word for it. There, there are themes in Scripture that connect to these images. Uh, you'll probably see that all the way through. But if not, email me, and uh, then I, I can say, hey, look at this passage. Uh, but there's a, there's a gallery of several images that I want to look at today during the rest of our time together, sort of like read or heard of Jaroslav Pelikan's book, Jesus Through the Century. He walks through a lot of images and the impact culture and how Jesus gets represented. We're taking that kind of, of an angle on this. Uh, and I want to start with uh, one that's pretty obvious. Jesus is a Jew from the first century, a Jewish teacher, a Jewish rabbi. We believe that he's the Messiah. Here's a picture of Jesus that's not a, a literal picture, represent, closely representative picture. But, but when Mark Chagall did this in the 1930s, with a Jewish prayer shawl as Jesus' loincloth, and people at the cross were like patriarchs and a matriarch from Scripture and Jewish pilgrims all around. It was because Chagall, in his experience, it looked like a lot of Christians had forgotten the Jewishness of Jesus um, by the early 20th century. And certainly that had been the case for many, many centuries. The New Testament's very clear on this. Um, and that image of Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher, a prophet, a messiah is very strong in Scripture. We don't have a, a early, we don't have art from that early Jewish uh, church context. But, and as the gospel moves out to Gentile, the Jewishness of Jesus gets lost in the imagination of many people. And, and it's one of the reasons why Christians have mistreated Jews sometimes in ways that are pretty uh, reprehensible. There's the image, actually. I'm sorry, I didn't uh, flip that over uh, quick enough. This is a pretty important theme, something I always sort of come back to. And as we get, run from one gallery to another, we're going to do like I would also do with my children and say, and here's the lesson from this gallery, uh, from this room. Uh, there's going to be a lesson with each one. And one of the lessons from this image is that the embodied historical person of Jesus is always very important. Easily forgotten in light of the other things that Jesus means, but always very important and something to come back to. The New Testament, early Christians reflect a lot on the story of Israel. 
and what God is doing in Jesus. And many themes come out about Jesus as they're exploring their faith that way. And some of these themes start showing up in art by the second and third century. There's not a lot of it uh, before the fourth century. And that's partly because it was a long time ago, but also because Christians were a small group and they were often oppressed and uh, they didn't want to draw a lot of attention to themselves. There weren't very many of them. Uh, so uh, there isn't a lot of art from this time period, but it's interesting to look at the art and the teaching and the preaching and the worship and notice some of the themes that are especially prominent, which I'm gathering under the Good Shepherd here. So what's this picture? What's this scene? Yeah, that's right. A woman reaching out to uh, touch Jesus' garment, and she's being healed. Here's an image from Catacomb, the third century, that really pictures Jesus as the good shepherd. It's also in sculpture a lot from this time period like this third century sarcophagus from Rome. Um, what's wrong with this picture? The Roman toga. So we've got fashion concerns, concerns about clothing, concerns about historicity. You know, it's a Roman toga, of course it is. And also, it shows this guy with a lamb across his shoulders. I mean, there's no story like this in the gospel right, about Jesus carrying a lamb. It's not, it's not a historical depiction. Although Jesus calls himself what? The good shepherd, yeah. So there's a metaphor in play. There's an image in play. It's being depicted in the clothes that people would recognize and connect to of uh, the time period. Are these pictures, you know, the, the one with the, the, the woman touching the garment, is that you, know, you can relate that to a particular episode in the Gospels. The Good Shepherd, okay, now that's a little different. That's not really telling, I mean, that's not a story from the Gospels exactly about Jesus, but it is something Jesus said. Is this an historical image? No. Is it a true image? That's a harder question to answer. Uh, images of Jesus, both in our hearts and on, you know, the wall, are conveying things about Jesus that are very symbolic. They're not necessarily picturing just a human person. Because people of faith think that Jesus means more than that. Jesus is a healer. Jesus brings comfort. Jesus protects. In early Christianity, they loved images like this. Images of Jesus healing. Images of Noah's Ark saving humanity. Uh, images of anchors. Things that you could trust and hope in. They're looking to God and to Jesus as a source of help in very difficult times. And that notion of Jesus as a good shepherd and a healer and a savior was really prominent in the early church. Jesus calls himself a good shepherd, of course, but it's not a literal image by any stretch. And as we leave this room very quickly, one of the lessons we take away is that our images of Jesus, they don't just tell scripture, they interpret scripture. They interpret scripture. And they teach something or express something about the faith. The power they have is because of their symbolic need. 
And it's, that's very easy to see with something like the Good Shepherd image, where, okay, that's not an episode of Jesus' life so much, but here's a metaphor that conveys something about who Jesus is. It connects with something that he claims. But often with our images, we have to look beneath the surface to get a sense of what the meaning of the image is and what it's doing for us. Now, moving on to another rune, um, in the 4th century, the persecutions mostly end in the Roman Empire. Emperor Constantine favors Christianity, and there's a succession of emperors who convert to Christianity. And now, there are, Christianity is popular, and there are a lot of people in the church trying to make sense out of Jesus in that culture and the government of that day. They pick up on this theme that's in Scripture, Jesus as a king, Jesus as a ruler over a kingdom, and they adapt it in interesting ways to their setting. Uh, what, just to yourself, thinking, what are your first impressions of this image? Jesus, you can recognize Jesus for sure. He's on a throne. Uh, there are symbols of the Roman Empire encoded into the imagery in a number of ways. Jesus is Lord over it all. He's kind of above it all. But he's also a participant in it and a kind of authorizer of it. And notice the cross over Jesus. Uh, the, the cross barely shows up in early Christian art before the 4th century, if it does at all. That's actually a controversial point. They talk about Jesus' death a lot, but they don't picture the cross or Jesus' death in Christian art very much at all. But from the 4th century and forward, when Constantine and the Roman Empire are using the image of the cross and the name of Jesus as uh, symbols of power to defeat the enemies of the empire, then that becomes a much more prominent symbol and you start seeing it everywhere. You've got this coin from the time of Theodosius II where there's a, a standard, a military standard with key row on it, which is the abbreviation of Jesus' uh, title, Christ, and then a cross in front of the orb that is symbol of imperial power, so you've got the emperor, you've got Jesus, you've got the cross, you've got money, what more do you need? You know, it's just all right here, combined together, and in ways that anybody from that time period would definitely recognize. Here's another image in a mosaic uh, from Ravenna in Italy, and in this one, Jesus is holding the cross like a weapon, and he's clean-shaven and dressed as a military Roman commander. And he's trampling on the enemies of the gospel, who also coincidentally happen to be the enemies of the empire. Uh, Arians, Arianism, a theological perspective in the 4th and 5th centuries, and that's what's represented by the lion and the serpent. Now, this idea of Jesus as this militant person who was fighting against the enemies of God and God's people. That plays one way when you're a, a minority people who is being truly persecuted and you have zero power. When you're the people that have all the power and you're packing heat, that plays another way when you see yourself as the people who are fighting against uh, the enemies of God and kind of confusing the enemies of God with the, your own enemies is something that's easy to do. Here's a picture of Jesus seated between, this from Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. It's a part of a big program of mosaic where Jesus takes his proper place in the social order of the time 
and there's an emperor on one side and an empress on the other side. Again, Jesus is Lord over it all, but he's also, what, what he's Lord over is this social order that is a kind of Byzantine imperial order. Um, your images fit into a story. They help tell a story. Sometimes it's not so much the image by itself that needs interrogating, it's the story. <laughs> it's the story that the image is being used to tell. So, is Jesus a king? Yes. Uh, does Jesus endorse the empire's persecution of Arians? That's a different question. And when you put those two questions on top of each other, that can be a bit confusing. So that's, I mean, it's easier to see from a distance. Sometimes it's harder to see close up, right? Where these, kind, these kinds of images get overlaid to present Jesus within a particular kind of story. This is an image that we'll come back to uh, tomorrow. But I've got a lesson from this room that our images of Jesus, they respond to circumstances, they, they reflect situations, they fit into stories, they help tell stories. That's always true. Moving on quickly into another room. Um, image of God and the cosmic Lord. This is another Byzantine Jesus, right? Kind of Byzantine beard style and dress. But he's all a bit glowing and transcendent, for sure. You may have noticed that some of these images aren't entirely realistic. Roman togas, right? It's probably not what Jesus would have worn. And this is even less realistic than that. That's partly about artistic techniques. It's partly about uh, styles. But it's also because people are trying to capture things about Jesus that can't be captured just by a realistic image. For instance, when people are trying to capture the cosmic lordship of Christ, how does one do that? Uh, you don't really, you don't have an early Christian gospel if you don't have this, this sense of, of cosmic lordship. Um, and it gets pictured in different ways artistically. Here it's on a sarcophagus where Jesus is carved, uh, seated over a personification of the cosmos as the Lord over it all, or to think about it a little bit differently, and you go to a passage like John 1, and you have the Word that is incarnate in flesh. This picture comes from the St. John's Bible out of Minnesota. The Word became flesh. You know, if, if you could take a photograph of Jesus, like you could go back in time and take a photograph, that would tell you a lot about what Jesus looked like. It wouldn't actually tell you very much about what Jesus means. And uh, the reflections that we get in Scripture and beyond in Christian teaching that are reflecting on what Jesus means, these are the kinds of things that many of our images, artistic images or images in our mind, are trying to unpack. Like an, an, an eternal word that is being incarnated in the flesh in some sense. As Christians reflected on who Jesus is and how to capture mysteries about Jesus, like we believe Jesus is human, we believe Jesus is divine, that was difficult. And some of these pictures are meant to try to get us to contemplate the mysteries. Not just that he was, a, you know, that, that he could blend in and he might look just like the guy next door. Because Christian belief suggests that God is doing something in Jesus that isn't exactly like what God's doing to your, through your next door neighbor, right? And so 
how to picture these mysterious things that are under the surface and uh, can't be photographed, that's one of the things people are wrestling with. Um, this is one of the most recognizable images that tries to do this from the Monastery of St. Catherine in Mount Sinai, trying to capture earthy Jesus and the divine Jesus. I don't know if you can see, but they're, they're really sort of two different faces blended together. When you do these in a mirrored composite, it's very obvious that, you know, this is what this Byzantine artist is doing, that he's trying to confront you with two different people uh, in this one picture of Jesus. The lesson in this gallery is that no image of Jesus can capture everything according to what Christian belief says, according to what the New Testament says about who Jesus is. Put more negatively, every image is flawed. Speaking of which, uh, here's a really important and powerful image from Scripture that becomes very influential and continues to be really influential in our time. Jesus as the suffering Savior and, and the Son of Man. Um, you know, this painting uh, so realistic, like reach out and, and touch the wool. And at one level, that's not Jesus, that's a lamb that's sitting on a, what looks like a, you know, a, a slaughtering block bound for slaughter. There's nothing about this that suggests Jesus, right? <laughs> well, no, there's everything about this suggests Jesus. You're, you're sort of looking at Jesus in this symbolic sense. There are things about Jesus being conveyed here, probably different things, different ones of us. But especially in the Middle Ages, in the West, as salvation is being seen less as Jesus defeating the powers of evil and ruling over the cosmos, and more about taking care of personal sin, personal sin, and the sacrifice of Jesus becomes a lot more important. And that image, like this one by Frangelico, uh, this image is meant to draw you into that experience. One aspect of the image is about exposing sin. It's about convicting you of your sin and helping you realize your culpability in the death of Jesus. But there's another aspect of the suffering Savior motif that's very prominent too. And it has to do with the way that the sufferings of Jesus and the sufferings of God in Jesus help God identify with the sufferings of the world that is traumatized and uh, people in the world. There are many examples of this over the centuries, but this altarpiece uh, by Grunewald is a profound one. If you could see it up close, you would see like every cubic inch of Jesus' body has been traumatized. This, was, uh, this comes from a chapel in a monastery where they were taking care of plague victims and people who suffered skin disease. So they're worshiping in this place and seeing this image that would help them understand God identifies with what they're going through. The suffering of Jesus is a powerful image. Uh, and it's very important in New Testament teaching and Christian doctrine. It takes just a few verses in the New Testament, which actually, frankly, have very little detail in them, and magnifies them and adds a lot of texture and, and color, uh, especially in the medieval West. Uh, but also that continues, right? 
uh, the Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, is like a late medieval meditation on the death of Jesus, where one is obsessing over every drop of blood that falls. Um, and that's a powerful kind of meditation, and an image we'll come back to again tomorrow. But that image is in everything about Jesus, right? As we're seeing elsewhere in the gallery. And so I'm reminded of this lesson, that even very good images leave out important things, sometimes critical things. So we've looked at these five images, and I just want to get you to think for a minute uh, uh, which, uh, which of these images or concepts connect best with you right now today. Ponder that for a minute and then share with your neighbor. And we'll just take, you know, 30 seconds or so to do that. I'm not talking about the art so much, although that gives us hooks. But I'm talking about the concept. Which of these concepts as we walk through this gallery really connect best with you? Take a minute and share that together. I thought some of these were high enough you were seeing over me, uh, but as my friend reminded me, this would be a better experience if I were less sinful for all of us, which uh, good. You were slightly reluctant to start talking. I think I kind of lulled everyone to sleep, right? And then started talking, picking up that energy, and here I am interrupting you again, saying, no, look at me, everybody look at me. Um, this, uh, this, it's interesting to reflect on these concepts and ideas, and of course as they're represented in art too. I've got a few more images I want to share with you that uh, I think are important to get out there as we move into another room. And this next one has to do with the image of Jesus as a judge, as a reformer. Um, you know, if you were in medieval churches in Western Europe, many, many churches and chapels, would have these doom paintings. And you would worship here every week, and you would see this picture of Jesus judging between uh, the good and the evil and sending people off their eternal room. Most of those things have been whitewashed, scraped off, but there are a few places in Western Europe where you can still see them. Because Jesus was a person who shook things up. Jesus called, one of the most important features of Jesus' teaching that he leads with is you should change, you know, the repent, Paul. Uh, and Christians understood Jesus to be a judge at the end of time. So you've got these images and these concepts that affected preaching and teaching and songs about Jesus as judge and as a reformer and as somebody who's trying to shake things up. I, mean, I don't know if your favorite image of Jesus might be something like Jesus with the children and he has a child on his lap, and sort of tussling their hair. That's not Revelation 1. You know, the image in Revelation 1 is a little different. It's the scary Jesus who has a sword in his mouth, and he's snatching lampstands away from churches in wrath, right? This is, a, this is a biblical image that's always been the case, but it's interesting tracking this particular theme to notice how frequent it is that it shows up prominently when Christians feel that some things need to change, that the church needs to shaken up, that things need to be cleaned up, that we're on the wrong path and we need to take another turn. And the art then often highlights Jesus' role as this prophet or uh, a reformer 
or an apocalyptic judge at the end of time, as somebody who is very unhappy with the way things are and is promising to change them, but you better get with the program, right? Uh, this shows up in lots of art. One of, a, a common theme uh, is the cleansing of the temple, uh, and here's a, a classic representation of that by El Greco. But that idea that Jesus uh, is uncomfortable and challenging, and he's got a program that uh, requires changes. Sometimes this particular thing shows up in, in the form of what's almost another whole, we could have a gallery of a, a room of its own, Jesus as the liberator. This is a, this is a shocking image by Bloch in the 30s of a black man being lynched. Or Jesus on the cross. Right? And the point of the image is to get people to think about which role Jesus has in the society and whether the Christian and others, but especially the Christian of the time, what, what role they're playing related to Jesus' real program because Jesus is a reformer, Jesus is a liberator, he just wants to change things. Well, what are the things that he wants to change? We could sit with some of these images for a long time and shame to kind of move quickly through them. But one of the lessons I take from this room is that our images of Jesus preach sermons. One of the one of a lot of people's favorite images is of Jesus as the personal beloved, or what Yaroslav Pelikan in his book Jesus Through the Centuries called the Bridegroom of the Soul, which is a larger category that captures uh, some of this. But there's this wonderful little picture of Teresa of Avila in the 16th century, and she sees a child, and the child says, who are you? And then Teresa of Avila says, I am Teresa of Jesus. Who are you? And the child says, I am Jesus of Teresa. And that captures very much Teresa of Avila's sense of closeness and personal intimacy I care so much about Jesus. You know what? He cares so much about me, too. And the kind of comfort and familiarity that uh, she cultivated in her relationship. There was a surge of devotion to the baby Jesus and the child Jesus uh, in Spain, where Teresa was, and subsequent centuries, and elsewhere, where Jesus is not just the suffering Savior who brought sorrow or conviction of sin, but he's this warm person. And the, the sentimental portraits bring this out. He's somebody who brings comfort and evokes very human responses. Uh, this is a Jesus who is a friend. He's a close companion. Somebody that you can relate to. One lesson I want to pull out of this room is just to observe that our images, they, they really don't they can't capture the whole enchilada. They um, tend to capture Jesus as intimate and relatable. He's a lot like me. He's comfortable when I'm with him. Or transcendent and other and not quite like me and maybe not, you know, very real comfortable. And it's very difficult for an image in a graphic image to represent both. It's very difficult for your sermons to do both. It's very difficult for your choices of biblical texts uh, to do both without some, um, uh, some attention and some intentionality to that. 
ideal man is one that uh, just want to highlight very quickly for the sake of time. But this really caught on after the Renaissance and in the Enlightenment where Jesus is being seen as just every person. Uh, but, or maybe the, what's best about humanity is in Jesus. This is the Jesus that the founding uh, people who founded America were interested in. But, but it's interesting to see what every person looks like. For example, here in this depiction, an early 20th century carpenter uh, looks just like a 20th century carpenter. And it's working class, the guy who would relate to the, the working class. Or more recently, something like this, Steve Sawyer, who does all these kinds of, of uh, depictions. But, you know, he's an outcast, he's a biker, he's tatted up. This is the kind of person he would relate to. It's interesting uh, representation of masculinity um, and of what it means for Jesus to be the common person. And I'm reminded out of this gallery, which we're not really spending much time with, that our images of Jesus are like mirrors. And uh, the, the question is, who's reflecting whom? And that's a question to be asking all the time, right? Who's reflecting whom? which comes out really prominently when we think about Jesus as the global Christ. Because in the last few centuries, as Western Christians have spread around the globe, and they've explored other parts of the world, and they've met people from very different cultures, done mission work there, it turns out Christ really does play in 10,000 places. Uh, and along the way, they've learned a few things, Western Christians in particular, uh, about all of that. For example, they learned that when they brought the gospel to some places, it was already there. Uh, there are Christians all around the world already, and they don't all have the same assumptions about what Jesus would look like. Uh, there was a, a well-established church in Ethiopia. Long before there were well-established churches in northern Europe, there were established Christian missions in uh, 8th and 9th century China, long before there was any Christianity in North America. And you might say, wait, in that historical, literal thing, Jesus did not look like a Chinese man. Jesus did not look like an Ethiopian man. Were you telling me he looked like this? You know, Jesus didn't look exactly like this either, right? And in the blue eyes, the fresco from Crete. But also, we've learned that when the gospel goes into new places, people's expectations can be pretty different in their ways of imagining Jesus and what Jesus is doing can be quite different. And one of the things that we're reminded of is that the ways of picturing Jesus, the way we talk about it, what we're assuming when we assume who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to as God's son, sometimes they reinforce the status quo and can even restrict the gospel to a certain frame of reference. And for people within the dominant culture, it's going to be a frame of reference that supports the dominant culture, and here's where Jesus as the liberator, Jesus as the reformer, comes together with Jesus, the global Christ who fits everywhere. Powerful lesson from this room for me is that sometimes we see Jesus best through others' eyes. Here are those last four images, and I'm wondering... Which of those windows into who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, your church most 
being right now. We wrap up. Um, there's so much more to talk about, obviously. We move very fast uh, through this gallery. But we've done that to get these impressions of different windows into the person of Jesus and how, how that works. Um, we've just taken a few selections and wanted to ask the question, how do I imagine Jesus? And not just what does Jesus look like, but what do I think Jesus is doing? What is Jesus about? What does salvation through Jesus mean? What does meeting Jesus mean? Oh, there's maybe more to that than I was thinking. There are other ways of thinking about that as I, as I look at these images that also are inspired by Scripture and by Christian uh, doctrine. Um, and it makes my own favorite images look a little bit different. And we've highlighted some lessons, and we're going to use those lessons tomorrow. Here I just want to close by drawing some ten- attention to a few things. Uh, our images of Jesus interpret Scripture. Uh, and they teach something about the faith. Ways of picturing Jesus, not just in art, but ways of imagining Jesus, change with times and context. That not, that's not necessarily bad. It's just something to take notice of. Uh, the real Jesus is a pretty deep, sophisticated, complex person uh, who's divine. Right? And it's, it's okay for this to be the case, but we need to remember it. Um, one thing is certain, <laughs> I don't want to be too discouraging, but it's true. However you depict Jesus, I mean, the instant you think that you've sort of captured the image of Jesus, that this is what he would look like, or this is what he means, this picture encapsulates it perfectly, the only thing you can be absolutely sure of at that moment is that you're wrong, right? That that is not exactly it. It didn't sum it up. It didn't capture the depth of everything. And so that that creates a little humility uh, for me. Everything expresses values. Everything forms values. All the things we do express faith. They also form faith. So my favorite images of Jesus may say a little more about me and my commitment than they do about Jesus and what Jesus is calling me to. But also, nurturing certain images of Jesus shapes how we think shapes how we see things, shapes what we value, shapes what we expect from Jesus and what we think Jesus expects from us, uh, which makes me wonder, so how healthy is my diet as I'm cultivating these images to make metaphors? How healthy is the diet on which I'm feeding? I hope I've hinted at the fact that our images have the ability to release our imagination to be more committed disciples, to draw closer to Jesus, to grow as Christians. But also that our images can distract us. They can make it harder for us to see important things about Jesus and what he's up to. And they can even become idols and reinforce us in ways that are not helpful for us and that don't advance the kingdom and the mission. Tomorrow, we're going to sort of pick up there. And we're going to look at that, and uh, in light of the lessons that we've learned from this rapid dash through the gallery, looking at some current ways of picturing Jesus, and look at some case studies and see what we can learn about ourselves, about where our blind spots are, about the impact of, of our images and our concepts and our faith and practice, and think a little about the value and 
agendas that are in place. So uh, hopefully, you'll be able to come back tomorrow and get the rest of this. But if you don't, I won't be too offended. There are a lot of wonderful things out there to do. And I hope you have a very good rest of the day. Thank you.